0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Richie Merzian. Richie is the Director of the Climate and Energy Program at the Australia Institute. He joined me for part three of Uncommon Sense's election policy series, this time on climate change. Ritchie looks at Australia's current climate targets and tells us what targets and policies are needed to keep global temperature increases to 1.5 degrees or, at the very worst, 2 degrees. He also examines and evaluates what Labor, the Coalition, the Greens and the Independents are proposing to do about climate and energy policy at this federal election. And that is where we are at in stage three of uh, Uncommon Sense's election policy series. It is something I started because policy, it seems, is not really a major focus of most media outlets at the moment, as we've discovered. Neither is it really a focus of the debates because it seems to just be these kind of headlines that politicians say and then they argue over them. So this is a brilliant opportunity to grab someone with great expertise in climate and energy policy. And that person is Richie Merzian, Director of the Climate and Energy Program at the Australia Institute, which is based up in Canberra. And Richie is joining me, as I said, to discuss climate and energy policy in the context of this federal election campaign, which I should mention, pre-poll voting opened yesterday and some people have already voted by postal vote. So it's really getting to crunch time. It means we're talking about the issues that really matter to us as a planet. And this is definitely one of them. So I welcome Richie now. Hi there, Richie. And thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. It's good to have someone on, especially from the Australia Institute, of which I am a big fan and I know many listening are as well, given you're doing great independent and original research as well as playing that very crucial role in communicating policy to the public as well as also in some cases to politicians. So I wanted to talk about policy and the different parties, of course, Labour and Liberal and I'd better add in their national, given how much sway they have over climate and energy policy in the coalition. But also, of course, with the Greens, which have a very strong platform, and some of the teal independents. So with that, I thought maybe we'd go a little bit back to basics to frame this conversation. First of all, what is the target that we as a nation have committed to on a global stage in terms of emissions reduction by 2030 and by 2050?
1: Yeah, that is a good place to start. In the lead up to the Paris Agreement negotiations, the big global pact on how to address greenhouse gas emissions that the world came together on in 2015, Australia put forward its contribution, which is to reduce emissions by a little bit over a quarter, 26 percent by 2030 off a 2005 baseline and since then since 2015 australia has not updated its targets so that's remained the same despite a lot of pressure especially last year in the lead up to the big glasgow summit to to increase it and most other developed countries most other like-minded similar economies all increasing their short-term targets australia's has remained the same However, the federal government has updated the long-term target, and that's net zero by 2050. So to get our emissions very close to zero um, in a little bit under 30 years' time, the actual plan to get there is quite different um, amongst the different parties, um, even though the goal might be similar in the longer term.
0: So that means that there is still quite a substantial difference, I believe, even if you're just thinking about the net zero by 2050 target between both Labor and the coalition. Because we have seen both of their plans. We've seen the coalition's plan or pamphlet, which um, Richard Dennis called it, uh, which was really very light on meaningful detail or things that would make a difference. I think that was his general assessment, as were many other journalists, especially Guardian journalists. I wonder, what was your assessment, especially given that we're hearing at the moment people like Matt Canavan, who has been a Cabinet Minister in the Morrison government, saying that essentially net zero by 2050 is dead?
1: Yeah, I mean, the problem with net zero by 2050 2050- Is that most of the politicians spruiking it will be dead in about you know like a a good Mm. odd 30 years time like unless you find a way to make it binding and commitment and have a lot of immediate short term wins along that pathway then it doesn't really stand for much and so the australian institute from the very start said net zero by 2050 is a fraud if fossil fuels flourish. And when we looked at the books, there were 116 new fossil fuel projects, over 70 coal projects, over 40 gas projects, all in the pipeline. So, and, and Australia is a major fossil fuel producer and an even bigger fossil fuel exporter in the top three exporters in the world. So Australia's plan is to supply the world with the problem, more of it going forward, and to continue to do that all the way up to and beyond 2050. So. It doesn't match up and then on top of that when you look closely at the coalition's plan it really has all this money and emphasis on fake solutions and i'm sure we'll talk about more of these fake solutions but a lot of it is money for fossil fuel technology to give fossil fuels a facelift so they seem less offensive in terms of their contribution to climate change and finally what makes it you know really quite damning this plan is it doesn't actually get to zero um it gets to eighty-five percent emissions reductions. And then the last fifteen percent, it's hoping to offset to buy carbon credits. And there's a whole we could have a whole separate conversation around the issues around offsetting in carbon credits in Australia. So it's not really a plan to get to zero, it's a plan to get close to that with a lot of emphasis on technology that has been a failure and mainly backs in fossil fuels. So the whole thing just really doesn't scrub well.
0: Yeah. And that means that obviously the 2030 target is important because that's a, a kind of staging post between now and 2050. And as we know, we can't just set big ambitious goals out into the future and not have smaller ones along the way to achieve because it rarely ever does get achieved. And that has been the argument all along. But what does the 2030 target actually intend to do, especially when we're thinking about the degree of warming impacts, because I did get to see an excellent infographic from the Climate Council where it was essentially laying out the differences between 1.5 degrees of warming and two degrees of warming, and essentially showing that the two degree impacts were catastrophically bad and very much a lot worse than 1.5 degrees. So could you tell us whether we're aiming for 1.5 or 2 and what that situation is right now for Australia?
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, The reason why you try and do as much climate action early on, well, there's one, one great analogy, which is like basically getting to net zero is like a marathon. And unless you actually keep pace, then you're crawling the first couple of laps which means you're gonna have to do way more in the final few laps as well. So you need to front end as much as you can. And also the way that emissions work is that if once you hit tipping points, once you get to that certain point, things will just compound in terms of how bad things get. So you want to front load as much climate action as possible. The current target, the federal government's target at 26% emissions reductions this decade is a really weak one and if everyone in the world had the same weak type of target, then we would be in, in train for at least three, if not closer to four degrees of warming. Right? So that is you know, crazy catastrophic. Now, if you increase that short-term effort, and that's what some of the other parties have put forward, then you're in a much better state, and we can kind of compare the two. But basically, Australia is an outlier right now. All our friends, all our like-minded economies, the US, the UK all the EU countries, New Zealand, they've all upgraded their targets. Even the countries that accept most of the fossil fuels, the majority of our fossil fuels, our coal and gas, goes to Japan, Korea and China. They've all put themselves on net zero pathways. So they're looking to scale down their fossil fuels as well. But Australia is just standing firm in wanting to continue to increase fossil fuel supply and to do very little this decade.
0: Indeed. And um, one of the important parts about this and something that's coming up at the moment in the campaign is what are the other parties offering in terms of their goal, in terms of a target by 2030 of emissions reduction? And we heard over the weekend an independent, Allegra Spender, who is running in the seat of Wentworth against Dave Sharma. She said that she has adopted a 50% reduction by 2030 target. Zali Stegall had, up until recently, I believe, adopted a 60% target. And the Australian Labor Party, when they released their comprehensive climate policy, announced a 43% target. Looking at those targets, I wonder whether they are enough, especially because I was following along on Twitter, as I often do, and saw a very interesting discussion between... Ketan Joshi and Ariane Wilkinson, and they were essentially saying that Australia needs to be more ambitious and beyond 50%, uh, which is something that the Business Council has supported and suggested be a target. Essentially, Ariane was saying that Australia should be reducing our greenhouse gas emissions by 75% below 2005 levels by 2030. And she said that the studies at the moment from Australia say that that would give us a flip of the coin, 50% probability of holding warming to 1.5 degrees. So I wonder, do you agree with that assessment? Is that what the research is saying or is it something else? And, and then therefore, how are our parties and independents lining up?
1: Yeah, look, that debate, which I also followed as a climate tragic stance, if you're being guided solely by the science, then yes, you need to have a short-term target that is more like a 75% emission reduction this decade. And that would give us a chance of staying within the 1.5 degree global warming guardrail, which is the upper limit, which is the best scenario we could possibly keep to under the Paris Agreement. Now there's only one below. The Greens have that as a short-term target. I think the new Liberals as well. And so that, really is the science leading the politics. A lot of the other targets being put forward, like the one that you um, mentioned by the candidate for Wentworth, Allegra Spender, that's sort of more the practical politics dictating the target. And I I get that. I understand that. If you listen to Labour, their spokesperson, Chris Bowen, trying to defend why they have a 43% emission reduction target, which is a reduction on their own target that they took to the 2019 election, which was 45%. He'll say it's because we're losing out on all the years that we have available between now and 2030 to make significant emissions reductions, to put in place the policies that will drive that change because the coalition has really been quite hands-off. It took its foot off the brake. When the federal government had a carbon price as part of the deal between Labor and the Greens and some independents, it worked. It reduced emissions 2% over the two years it was in place. The economy grew. It was a successful climate policy. When it was removed, emissions grew, and they grew for the next four or five years. So we've really lost a lot of time. So there's this tension between what can we do versus what does the science require. And in that, you kind of have to make a decision which one trumps the other. If climate change is going to be led by science, like our pandemic response was led by science, then we should be as ambitious as possible.
0: That's very true and it is a great point that the Greens essentially are out there on their own on this one And so therefore, if you were prioritising that as something to sway your vote, really there isn't many others that come close. We've got most of the independents saying at least 60% as their 2030 target. Of course, as I mentioned, Labor at 43%, as you said, 26% with the coalition, which includes the Liberal and National parties. And then some of the other independent candidates like Allegra Spender being lower than her counterparts of 50%. If we step away from some of the numbers for a moment and look at the two major parties, those who could potentially form government in their own right, or maybe Labor and others in a hung parliament, who knows, or even the coalition and others in a hung parliament. If we think about who might be able to influence the parliament on climate policy, and if a voter is coming in to vote, thinking about how they could be tactical about their preferences in the upper and lower houses is that something that a voter should keep in mind you know who could keep the major parties accountable in the senate and therefore i would vote for xyz you know what are some of the voting strategies people might be able to use if climate change actually is something that they desperately want action on now
1: oh I, I, absolutely i thought you were going to riff into the democrat sort slogan of keeping the bastards honest <laughs>
0: Go for it, though. No, I agree.
1: <laughs> yes, of course. You know, your where you direct your vote will ultimately have an influence. And so if we have more Greens members, given that they have a stronger target, or more of the independents who have stronger targets, or some of the other political parties like the new liberals who have stronger targets, then yes, that will make a difference, just like it did in, in the original negotiation between Labour and the Greens and those three independents. They ended up coming up with a carbon price. They ended up coming up with the Climate Change Authority and the Clean Energy Investment Corporation and the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, all the kind of architecture that actually led to our emissions reduction. And that's because there were ambitious people around the table who held the government to account on climate change. So yeah, of course, it makes a major difference. And that's what we ultimately need. We have lost a lot of time not reducing emissions. The government has tried to get away with saying things like Australia has reduced emissions. That's through a lot of dodgy accounting, which we can unpack. We've looked at it closely. And when it comes to Australia's energy sector, our fossil fuel usage is just as bad as it was when the coalition came in. And that's yeah. because we haven't decarbonized. We've relied on these dodgy accounting tricks around land use. Before that, we tried to rely on these dodgy carbon credits called the Kyoto um, units. And so really we've lost a lot of time. If you want to try and make that up, you need to find the most ambitious um, the most ambitious policies and the candidates who are pushing those most ambitious policies.
0: And if we think about the two parties and the policy base for which these negotiations would begin from because obviously each party will start from a different position. You did mention earlier the coalition having some fake solutions based around technology And uh, I know I have seen a lot of these ads where big fossil fuel companies have pictures of people in front of solar panels when essentially it's about a fossil fuel. And it seems to get people a bit confused, understandably, because they're trying, I guess, to revamp their image as the coalition are as well. But a lot of these solutions that have come up seem to have grabbed a lot of people, especially business people, you know, talking about something called green hydrogen, which, you know, has come up for years at these climate policy panel discussions I've uh, been at and uh, even moderated and people getting really excited, especially those who are a little bit more conservative. Would you be able to explain what some of these technologies are and whether they are going to be effective, something that will be useful in achieving these targets?
1: Yeah, totally. Um, There's a lot of hype around hydrogen and that's because it It can give fossil fuels a facelift. It can change them into something that is more digestible, that has a a social license. But here's what hydrogen is. It's an energy carrier, right? You can make hydrogen in two ways. You can make it using powering a process of electrolysis, of splitting water and getting hydrogen from it. And if you power that entire process using renewable electricity, then the entire production process can be zero emissions. And then when you use hydrogen, it it can also be zero emissions as well. So the whole process can be zero emissions. That's green hydrogen, right? So it's a zero emissions process for, for getting an energy carrier called hydrogen. And you can use hydrogen theoretically to make electricity or to power a vehicle or to do a whole bunch of things. The other way you can make hydrogen is using fossil fuels. And that's how most hydrogen is currently made. And it's a really dirty process. In fact, the production process to turn fossil fuels into hydrogen is so dirty, you get more greenhouse gas emissions than if you just burnt the bloody fossil fuels directly. (laughs) And so the only way that you could pretend like you could clean that up is if you promise to bury most of those emissions. And that's the situation we have now. A lot of spin to say, hey, why don't we bury these emissions from the hydrogen process using carbon capture and storage And then we'll have clean hydrogen so the federal government's defined hydrogen as clean hydrogen either through this zero emissions process using renewable energy or this fossil fuel dirty process with the promise to bury emissions but the problem there is carbon capture and storage has been a colossal failure over four billion dollars committed by federal and state governments and not a single successful fully operational site in the country And most of the time this technology is used, pushing greenhouse gas emissions, CO2, underground. It's in order to actually push up more oil through a process called enhanced oil recovery. So most of the sites that exist for this technology around the world are to extract more fossil fuels. And if you burn them, you end up with more emissions. The whole thing is this giant cluster. It is really just Mm -hmm. a technology to pretend like you can change fossil fuels into something that's a bit cleaner, on the basis of a technology that's never really worked. And if it fails, you end up with more emissions than if you started with. That's the situation where we're in now. And the government doesn't have a way to certify where the hydrogen comes from. And so it just calls everything clean hydrogen. So earlier this year in the Latrobe Valley, they used brown coal, the dirtiest fossil fuel, to make hydrogen. And it was so emissions intensive that, that if you just burned the brown coal, you would have ended up with less emissions and then they just shipped it to Japan and, you know, and launched some fireworks and said, yippee, um, and then bought some carbon credits and said, well, now it's carbon neutral, now it's cleaned up. Like The whole thing is a giant stitch-up, and you do it in order to try and sell more fossil fuels because it looks like hydrogen when it's received in Japan or in Korea or in China, and when they burn that hydrogen, they don't get emissions. Australia gets the emissions now, not Japan or Korea. That's the giant stitch-up, and it's terrible. And if we go down this path we're we're basically just giving another lease of life on fossil fuels, and we're probably going to end up with more emissions, not less.
0: Well, it's staggering to hear that. And I wonder, could you tell us, is there a difference between Labor and the coalition on the use of things like that dirty version of hydrogen and also carbon capture and storage?
1: Yes, but with a caveat. So Labor seems a lot less interested in providing public funding, public subsidies to dirty hydrogen. We've seen a lot of money flow from the coalition to these hydrogen hubs, including for carbon capture and storage. They've even tried, the the federal government's just pushed for a new carbon crediting process so that Santos can get carbon credits for pushing CO2 underground as well. So you're seeing a lot more money from the federal government now, the coalition, go towards these dirty technologies. Labour, it seems, won't give the same public funding to these fossil fuel technologies, but at the same time see this as potentially part of the mix. So it's a better version, but certainly not best. The best version would be to ban any use of this dirty hydrogen from fossil fuels, only have this green renewable-based hydrogen and also to ban any any funding for carbon capture and storage, which has been a, a colossal failure. Mm. Remember, we used, to, we used to call it clean coal. We don't call it clean coal anymore because that, <laughs> that that doesn't work. We, you know, there was all these promises that we will bury the emissions next to coal-fired power stations. Doesn't work. Doesn't work overseas. Doesn't work here. And now they just changed it. They've upgraded the the language, and now they call it clean hydrogen, not clean coal.
0: Mm. When we think about some of the other options which historically have not been something Australia would choose, such as nuclear energy, I did watch a candidates forum and was surprised when one of the candidates brought up nuclear as being the solution to all of our problems, and that was a Liberal Democrat. Are there any other parties who are advocating nuclear, and is that something that would ever be part of the mix?
1: In Australia, no. No, it, just, it doesn't make sense for Australia. We don't have a nuclear power industry. If we were to start today and just chuck all our effort and time and money into it, maybe in 15 years, if we're lucky, more like 20 years, we'll end up with a nuclear reactor that we can actually use to power things. By that time, we will have over 100%, if not you know, 200 300 400% renewable energy powering our electricity grid. So it just seemed, it seems ridiculous to go down this path. Nuclear energy is one of the only forms of energy that gets more expensive, not less. Mm. Um, and so given we don't have the nuclear power industry here, it makes no sense for us to go down this path. We keep having these nuclear proponents say, we need to have a debate about nuclear. We've had it multiple times and it's lost and we need to invest in what works now. But the cheapest way we can make electricity is through renewable energy. And if you've got solar panels on your roof, then you're making the cheapest electricity that we have.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you dispelled that myth around nuclear because it does seem to come up every election and it feels like a broken record. Now, talking about renewables, because that really is where the opportunity is, it has been an opportunity for decades. And it's something that the Labor Party is pushing hard on, especially because at the last election, they kept on getting these gotcha questions from journalists about, well, how much is your climate policy going to cost Australia? They've come out with this highly modelled, all fully costed document through Reputex and uh, there's a whole lot of graphs and numbers in there about just how beneficial renewable energy will be, obviously for the environment, but also for creating jobs, essentially making it an economic opportunity, not a loss. So could you tell us your assessment, I guess, of Labor's current focus and policy on renewable energy and whether that stacks up and whether that seems to be an improvement on the past and also maybe in comparison to any of the other parties that you think might be of relevance.
1: Yeah, sure. Labor's plan takes the existing infrastructure we have that the coalition's built and actually makes it work. So it wants to take an existing cap on emissions for the 215 most high polluting facilities and actually make them reduce their emissions in line with net zero. That's great because right now they allow their emissions to go up under the coalition. They'll make those high-polluting facilities go down. On top of that, they want to invest in the grid. We don't have a fit-for-purpose electricity grid. Our electricity grid is a couple of massive coal-fired power stations, just one way pumping out electricity, about the same amount of electricity, out to homes and to factories. Now we need a grid that can take a lot more renewables that are smaller than these coal-fired power stations, but are all over the place, different locations. And we want to generate a two-way flow. We want houses to be able to pump in power when they've got too much on their roofs, or they can pump in power from electric, their electric vehicles when they're fully charged up. And our electricity demand is really high, so we want to build a fit-for-purpose grid. We need a lot of lot more storage behind it as well. And so, Labor have a $20 billion. Fund which they want to use to upgrade the grid and build more storage. And that's necessary. And then Labor says with that, they can get to over 80% renewable electricity by the end of this decade as well. That's important because we're looking to electrify our transport as well, right? Transport emissions are a bit under a fifth of our national emissions. We don't have any policies to turn that around. And so, really, we need to be creating more electricity, not less, because we're going to want to switch our transport onto the electricity grid rather than on getting foreign oil. And most of our oil is foreign, 91% of it comes from exports. And so their plan is to work immediately with what we already have to try and ramp it up as much as possible this decade. And it will get us some way of the way. And it's sort of a useful model for us to hit the ground running. Whether that's enough is another question. Then the Greens want to go a step further. They want to significantly reduce our emissions three quarters this decade. They have a number of sort of more ambitious policies, including around fossil fuels. And this is where Labor's sort of fallen short. They don't want to talk about fossil fuel production, whereas the Greens rightly know that it's impossible for us to actually hit net zero emissions unless we deal with the elephant in the room. And the elephant room is a giant you know, piece of coal. And so we need to address those fossil fuel emissions. And so... The Greens have gone further and says we need to stop opening up new coal mines, stop opening up new gas fields, and have a plan to phase down our thermal coal down to zero this decade as well. And that's the kind of ambition that actually is in line with the science, but is probably far more politically difficult to land.
0: Yeah. I remember seeing a, a news piece come out after your federal climate debate at the Australia Institute, which is available online for those wondering. Unfortunately, the um, coalition side did not want to turn up, and uh, that was no. Angus Taylor.
1: They uh, complained about it afterwards to news court papers. Yeah. Saying, oh, well we couldn't we couldn't go on there because they're biased, and uh, if Chris wants to, uh, if if uh, Labor wants to debate us, it should be on two GB. So. <laughs> yeah so go. strong I mean, argument I, have you seen much of minister taylor i mean the minister for emissions reductions has been quite um quite i have not point.
0: seen him okay. once i don't, I don't mm. think i've seen him at all no it's very disturbing i did see that chris bowen had actually who is i should say the shadow minister for climate change and energy and would be the minister if labor get in he did apparently address that that kind of question around new coal plants and gas plants. And, you know, did he actually make any headway on that in terms of a development on policy?
1: It felt like it. It's great to hear someone in that position actually admit we will not have any more coal-fired power stations built in this country. They're uneconomic Um, They're also unreliable. In fact, our energy prices have gone up and will continue to go up because of all the breakdowns in our coal-fired power stations and the high cost of coal right now. And so it was great to see him actually admit that, yes, I will admit it. We're not going to have any more coal-fired power stations, and we need a plan for how we phase them down because they're going to retire faster than what's currently advertised. We saw this in, in the deal that was stitched up on the closure of your lawn which has been moved forward to this decade by the Victorian government. And um, the same thing as well with, uh, with with coal plants in other states. So we need a plan to do that. We need to recognize that coal served a purpose. That purpose is now concluded. We need to switch to a clean energy grid. And that involves actually investing more in renewables, more in transmission, more in storage, and planning out the... Because fel- the last thing you want is for a coal-fired power station to break down overnight and not open up again and suddenly Mm. put a whole community in a terrible position. We saw that with Hazelwood. We don't want to repeat that mistake. But to do that, you need to actually have an open conversation. And it's all these hushed tones and secret deals between state governments and coal-fired power station owners. It shouldn't be like that. In Germany, the German government, which had a larger coal fleet than we have here, sat down with the unions with the state governments, with the owners of the coal-fired power stations, with environmental NGOs, and mapped out the planned closure for every single coal-fired power station, how much it would cost, how much they needed for the communities to be supported. And then they implemented it, and that's what we need here. And it was good to see that Labour was at least open to having that conversation and seeing what, what that plan would look like.
0: As you, I think, had mentioned in another interview a while back, you know, this is a starting point and they have also said that they would be listening to expert advice if they should form government to be able to improve the policy that they've brought in as a kind of base-level policy.
1: That's right, and it it is good. I mean, to some extent, they, they need to see, you know, what skeletons the government's left in the closet when they open it up. About 10 years ago, I worked for the Department of Climate Change. We had one in Canberra. And it was doing some great things in terms of emissions reductions and in terms of helping Australia adapt to the unavoidable impacts and playing a role in negotiating on the international stage. That department was dismantled under the Abbott government and a lot of good people left who have lost a lot of capacity to actually implement and design these policies. One thing that I think is really exciting, and this is my personal bias, but on the international stage, there's also a big difference Labour want to host a UN climate conference right here in Australia in two years' time in partnership with the Pacific Island country. I think this would be massive. It's probably going to be the biggest climate thing they'll deliver in, in, in the next term of government if they get in, because it'll bring the whole world to Australia. It'll fix Australia's or go some way to fixing Australia's reputation as a handbrake on climate action. It'll improve relations with the Pacific because we're actually working on their policy issue of choice, their existential threat, and helping them raise that at the global level. And it'll bring all lies here. And we will have to defend our policies, not just in some contrived debate on Channel 9. It'll be to the entire world stage. You'll be asking Australia, why aren't you, why aren't you doing your fair share? And man, mm-hmm. I think it's super exciting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it is really exciting. And it's very crucial for our current relationship with the Pacific Island nations. I wanted to just bring in a little argument that comes up a lot, and I know that you'll be able to uh, counter this really easily, but it's something that I think most of us wouldn't necessarily have the words for, and it is that you hear this thing of, oh, well, we need coal and gas because it's kind of stabilised our grid and it's always reliable and it's always there, which clearly we know, um, you've just mentioned, it's not that reliable and it goes off um, at different times and fails. But a lot of people who are critical will say, you know, the wind sometimes doesn't blow, the sun sometimes doesn't shine. How on earth are we going to store this renewable energy in order for it to make up such a high proportion of our energy mix? And I know that Labor and the Greens have put out fairly substantive policies around batteries, for example, but I wonder if you could tell us, you know, what your thoughts are, what, what the answer to that argument is and whether the policies around it at the moment seem to facilitate it.
1: Yeah, it is a great argument, which which is how, how can we possibly um, have everything that we have with coal and gas with renewables? You can and you can do even better than that. So. The way that coal-fired power stations work, is they pump out the same amount, generally the same amount of power. They they don't rise and fall quickly to the needs that we have on the grid. That's sort of the base load argument. Oh, well, coal provides the base load amount of electricity, and that's what we need. That's not what our grid requires. Our grid rises and falls depending on when we need that electricity. When we all get home, we blast our heaters and we turn everything on that's when our electricity peaks, when it's an extremely hot day and we all have our air cons on full blast. That's when we need the most electricity. In the middle of the night, we need far less. How do you meet those peaks and troughs? Well, renewables are well-placed to do that, especially with storage. And so having six, eight hours of batteries backing up a lot of our electricity is the way to not only meet those peaks and troughs, but also to do it in the most cost-effective way. Renewables with batteries is the cheapest way that you can currently build new electricity, and we can scale that up. And on top of that, as we were saying, when you have a fit-for-purpose grid, then you have a two-way flow. You can call on houses, you can call on electric vehicles, you can call on big, big factories to play a role in meeting those peaks and troughs. There's a whole rule change to the electricity market that the Australian Institute helped bring in, along with other partners, where we allow incentivizing, turning off your demand or lowering your demand when that peak is coming in on a really hot day and being paid for it. Because that sort of response is just as good as bringing online more power. So there's all these changes you can do to build it into the system and also all the other kind of services you have for an electricity grid, you can also get from renewables and batteries and storage as well. So the whole thing can be done. We just need to invest in building a fit for purpose grid because we know that coal and gas are gonna break down more often. We know we're gonna have to retire them out. We know they're getting more expensive. So let's plan for a better grid. And the benefit, if you look at the work of rewiring Australia and Saul Griffith, is we will all pay less out of our pocket as a result. And we can tell you how much, it'll be around five grand a year that you'll save by 2030 if you switch to electric in your house, you switch to an electric vehicle, you pop solar panels on your roof. And that's even greater in Victoria, which is so highly reliant on gas for its heating and for everything else in its homes. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I do note that the ALP, for example, is uh, seeking to invest $200 to install community batteries, around 400 of them in Australia. And they're also looking at shared solar banks, for example. So there are a whole range of different measures that are relating to that. And also, of course, what you've said there about rewiring the grid, that's been termed rewiring the nation, one of those great PR terms that parties come up with. Just to finish off on the conversation, Richie, We watch these leaders' debates and, I I mean, I was perplexed watching it on Sunday night and I did sit through the whole thing. I don't know if you did, did you?
1: Yes, I did.
0: You did. I just wanted to, I guess, close it out personally because I was a little bit disheartened when I saw I think probably the greatest point of yelling at each other and talking over each other was the moment of talking about the electricity grid and how much, things are going to cost, and it just got so confusing. I'm not sure any voter at home would have had any idea what they were arguing about. Did you know what they were actually arguing about?
1: Yeah, it's it, this beat-up where because Labor has a $20 billion fund, the Rewiring Australia Fund, which it wants to use for transmission and storage, the federal government took that fund and divided it up and said, well, if everyone has to pay for this fund... This is how much it's going to be in terms of increasing our electricity bills. And it's a really crude and incorrect way of trying to scare people into higher electricity bills. When we know electricity has gone up, it was promised to go down when we got rid of the carbon price. It went up. It's continued to go up. And the federal government is now trying to scare people into thinking that actually investing in the grid that will bring electricity prices down will lead to higher electricity prices. But at the end of the day, like, Labour's point stands. Like we've had multiple energy policies put forward by the energy minister Angus Taylor and his predecessor Josh Frydenberg, and none of them have landed. And electricity companies don't even trust the federal government anymore. Mm. Now, when uh, Origin Energy was negotiating an early closure for one of its coal power stations in New South Wales, it did it with the New South Wales energy minister. And then only the night before, they've been working on it six months, only the night before did they let the federal energy minister know because they don't trust the federal government on energy. And that's the situation we're in now. And unfortunately, we're going to have a lot of catching up to do to fix that. But it's certainly not going to help having a shouting match between the two of them on any debate. Uh, Energy, like climate, is bereft of that intelligent conversation that we need if we're going to take this issue seriously. And hopefully... If a government gets in that has a serious energy policy, it'll just happen and it will move on. We haven't even started having that conversation. If you think about where transport was three years ago, you know, you had this ridiculous scare campaign that electric vehicles will end the weekend. That's ridiculous. And now we see how good electric vehicles can be. And so really we need to evolve this conversation so we can talk seriously about how we can best add to the climate solutions and do our fair share in Australia.
0: Yeah. Richie, so well said, and thank you for explaining that. I feel better now that I understand what on earth was happening. Thank you so much for taking us through the different policies and issues relating to climate change. It's been very illuminating, and I really appreciate your time and all the work that you and your colleagues are doing at the Australia Institute. My pleasure. I've just been chatting with Richie Merzian, who is Director of the Climate and Energy Program at the Australia Institute. And you were just listening to part three of Uncommon Sense's election policy series about climate and energy policy. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.